Hello, everyone. Um, we're going to start um, tonight with a, a question just to discuss around tables. And the question is, which of these words, if I can get them on, best describes how your friends view the Bible and why? Which of these words best describe how your friends view the Bible and why? Just a minute around tables to discuss that. Okay, there's, there's some of the views that are out there. Interesting, irrelevant, harmful, boring, intimidating. Haven't really thought about it. I, I wonder what uh, you said around the tables, what your friends think about the Bible. But I want to say that if that's the, the views that are out there about what the Bible is amongst our friends, then it's no surprise that we as Christians can sometimes feel a little bit um, shaky when it comes to the Bible. Maybe our confidence is undermined because of some of these things that we hear from the world around us. Is it really true? We might wonder. Can I really build my life on words on a page um, called the Bible? What about the parts that do seem irrelevant or parts that do seem even harmful? Well, all of those questions that I'm sure we've asked at some point or are asking at the moment are addressed by this first sola that we're going to look at tonight, Scripture Alone or Sola Scriptura. And the key question that we need to wrestle with as we come to this topic is the question of authority. That's what was going on in the 16th century Reformation. Where does the authority lie? That was the key question. Is it in the Bible or is it somewhere else? This is the first point on your sheet, the Bible and the battle for authority. Now, every Christian agrees in whatever church around the world that the Bible is important for their faith. It will be an authority for them in the Christian life. But is it the highest authority for them? That's the key question. Is it the highest authority? Because in reality, there are other voices competing with the Bible for that top place of authority. Now, the diagram I'm about to introduce you to, um, some of you will have seen uh, before. It's sometimes called the Brie diagram. Um, and we'll be going through it uh, in a minute. It's a helpful way of remembering these different sources of authority, Bible, reason, institution uh, slash tradition, um, and experience, the Brie diagram. Uh, four sources of authority in the Christian life. Now, the first competing voice with the Bible is the voice of reason. Now, reason is a good thing. The God of the Bible is rational. He's made us as rational beings with the ability to think and study and uh, do university degrees and, and write essays and sit exams. Sorry to drop that in. You probably didn't want to think about that tonight. Um, the danger comes, though, when reason becomes our highest authority. And it can lead us down the track of liberal theology, where we only believe the Bible when, it's, when it makes sense to us, when it makes sense to our rational minds. I heard an example of this recently on a podcast I was listening to, where uh, two people, not Christians, were talking about the events of the crucifixion. And they were talking about the darkness that came over the land as the gospel writers uh, record it in the Bible. And they said, well, dark, it couldn't be dark at midday. So we, we just need to find a different way of explaining what was going on there in the Bible. Uh, surely the Christians were thinking that that was a helpful thing to say, even though surely it couldn't happen. Uh, scientifically, we can't explain it. You can multiply those examples, can't you? Healings, miraculous events, most significantly the resurrection itself can all be argued away because they don't fit with human reason. So that's uh, one competing source of authority, is reason. The second uh, competing voice is the institution or tradition. Now this is where the rubber really hits the road, I think, at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. The dominant institution at the time was the Roman Catholic Church. 
and they agreed with the idea that the Bible was authoritative and was the word of God. They agreed with that idea. But in reality, the church institution and the Pope were competing um, for the position of authority. Just listen to one Catholic theologian from the time, Sylvester Prierias. He was writing in response to one of Martin Luther's uh, letters. We'll think about him again in a minute. Um, just listen on your sheet to what he said. He said, he who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and Pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. Do you see here the way that the Church of Rome and the Pope are put on equal footing with the Holy Scriptures? We might even say that they triumph over the Bible because the Scriptures draw their strength and authority from the Church and the Pope, not the other way around. Now, it's worth making the point that the reformers in the 16th century weren't anti-tradition. If you read someone like John Calvin, for example, he quotes all the time from church fathers like Augustine. He was supported by the tradition of the church as he interpreted scripture. They also wanted to stress the importance of churches and church leaders and preaching um, because that would guide people in the right interpretation of the truth. And yet scripture was never subordinate to those authorities. It was never in the lower place than tradition. It was always their highest and final authority. Well, the third source of authority that's competing with the Bible is experience. Now, experience, again, will form an essential part of our Christian lives, won't it? We don't just download information from the Bible. We experience it. We experience the love of God for us in Christ. Our experiences shape who we are. But again, it can all too easily become the main source of authority that triumphs over the Bible. Even though we might say that the Bible is our authority, in reality, it's our experiences that dictate what we do and how we make decisions. Whether that's a mystical event or a sign we believe was from God or an inner spiritual feeling that takes priority over the Bible. But instead of standing over what the Bible teaches, all our experiences need to be brought in light um, of the scriptures, don't they? So there are four authorities, uh, the Bible, reason, institution, and experience. And the argument of the reformers was not that scripture is our only authority. I think this is really important to, to make clear. It's not that it was our only authority. That's sometimes known as the view solo scriptura or nuda scriptura, which I quite like, you know, nude scripture. Um, that's the idea that all I need is just me and the Bible. Um, that's all I need. That's not what the reformers were saying. But they were saying that scripture alone is our final and highest authority, sola scriptura. Does that make sense, that distinction? Now, this is what we're going to explore uh, in the time we've got tonight. Why did the reformers believe that about the Bible? And what will it mean for us to believe that today? I'll put a definition on your sheet that we're going to unpack together. Scripture alone, because it is God's word, is our inerrant, that means without error, sufficient, and final authority. Now, as I said at the start, maybe your confidence in the Bible is a bit shaky at the moment. Maybe you're struggling to see that it's true and good. Well, my prayer is that tonight uh, we'll begin to see even more clearly that we can stand on what the Bible teaches just as the reformers did. Now, to begin with, I want to tell you about a man who did take a stand on the Bible, even though it was likely to cost him his life, and that man was Martin Luther. Now, we thought about him two weeks ago, Germany, 1517, 
95 theses on the door of the church in, in Wittenberg, um, arguing against the practice of indulgences. Hopefully that's ringing some bells. And that set the whole of Europe alight. Well, this is now 1520, three years later. Things are starting to escalate. He's writing more. People are disagreeing with what he's saying. Um, and he's starting to call into question a bit more clearly the authority of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. And so he's summoned to appear before the Roman Emperor at the time, Charles V, um, who is a committed Roman Catholic. So then in 1521, Luther turned up for something called the Diet of Worms. Worms is a German city and a diet is just an assembly, so we're not talking about um, food here. Um, this was a group of people assembled in Worms to decide the fate of Luther. Always interesting, isn't it, when something happens over there? Now, um, at the assembly, let me uh, just pop, pop this picture on. Um, all of Luther's works were laid out on a table in front of him, and he was asked, will you stand by what you've written, or will you recant what you've said? Now, Luther didn't want to speak rashly, so he decided to take a day to think about it. He went home, then he came back the next day, and when he came back the next day, he responded with these famous words on your sheet. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Do you see that Luther takes his stand here on sola scriptura? He's bound by the scriptures and his conscience is captive to the word of God. For Luther, the Bible is his highest and final authority. And unless he's convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, he won't stand by it. Now, the same cannot be said of the Pope or church councils who often err, so get things wrong and contradict themselves. Now, it's interesting as well, isn't it, in Luther's reply um, that he talks about reason as well. Did you notice that um, in, in the quote? He needs to be convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason. Now, I don't think he means here that reason might then take authority over the Bible. No, I think he's talking about logical conclusions that can be made to help us apply the Bible rightly. And we'll think a bit more about this later. But clearly, reason does play a part in Luther's understanding about Scripture. It's sola scriptura, and not solo scriptura, and we see that here. But here he is, taking his stand and challenging the view of authority held by the Roman Catholic Church. It's not the Bible and the Church side by side. It's the Bible alone as the highest and final authority. So I want to ask, why did the Reformers take their stand on the Bible? Why did they believe that Scripture alone is their highest authority in the Christian lives? Well, the conviction lies in one important statement. They believe that what Scripture says, God says. So just over the page, what Scripture says, God says. That's how American theologian B.B. Warfield once phrased it. Now, if you've been around in churches for a little bit, then you might have heard um, just the phrase, uh, God's word, slip off the tongue. People talking about God's word, you know, we're about to stand and hear God's word. But do you realise what an incredible thing to say that is? That the Bible is God's word, the voice of the living God. It's a claim that, the, that every word of the Bible has been spoken by the God of the universe. And when I say every word, I do mean every word. 
not just the words where God is quoted or the verses that start, thus says the Lord. It's not just the words um, of Jesus in red letter Bibles either, but the words in between as well. The historical facts, the genealogies, the poems, the biographical details, the ands, the buts, the therefores, all of it is God's word. Welcome, Rebecca. Nice to see you. So in other words, every word and phrase and detail in the scriptures has been spoken by God. Now I just want us to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 to see this. This might be a familiar passage to some, but a really foundational one. Pick up a Bible, um, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me. Now in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, if you just glance your eye over at chapter 4 verse 2, the command that Paul gives to Timothy is to preach the word and to be ready in season and out of season. And here in chapter 3, Paul reminds Timothy why he must preach the word, because it is the powerful and sufficient word of God. So have a look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Paul writes, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there's lots to learn here about um, what scripture is, but I just want to spend a minute on those uh, last few words of verse six, sorry, first few words of verse 16. All scripture is God breathed. Now, when Paul talks about all scripture here, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. So he's writing to Timothy at a time when there was no complete New Testament. He says earlier on that Timothy learned, uh, from, learned the scriptures in infancy, was brought up with the scriptures. It's the, it's the Old Testament. And it's those Old Testament scriptures that are God-breathed. Now, Paul uh, uses a single word in the New Testament Greek to describe um, scripture, God-breathed. It's the word theonoustos, which is basically the word God and breath, just mashed together to create one uh, new word. And to say that God has breathed out scripture is to say that these are his spoken words. It's all a product of his breath. Now, I don't know whether you've thought about this before, but you need breath to speak. As you speak, you're breathing out, and then that's why you have to take in another breath, isn't it? We, we breathe out our words. We speak them. You might also know from the Old Testament that there's one word in Hebrew that could either be translated breath or spirit, the word ruach. Should we try that together? Ruach. In the, in the throat. Learn a couple of words tonight. Um, so to say that the scriptures are, are God-inspired is to say that they're, sorry, God-breathed is also to say that they're spirit-inspired. The spirit of God has breathed out these words of scripture. Now I use the word inspire there uh, deliberately because it's the technical name for this idea. It's the belief in the inspiration of scripture. Um, you might have heard, heard that before. Now we use the word inspire, I think, in a, a bit of a different way today. I remember um, several years ago reading a book called The Ultra Marathon Man. Has anyone read that? Where this guy would just go for marathons before breakfast most days and then do 100-mile runs and 200-mile runs. He's, he's an incredible um, man. And I was so inspired reading this book. It was about 11 o'clock at night. put on my running gear and just went for a run at 11. I was inspired. And that's usually what we mean, isn't it? This feeling of being motivated by something. But that's not what we mean um, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture. To say that the Bible is inspired by God means that all Scripture has its origin in him. He has spoken every word. And so what Scripture says, God says. Now, as you read the New Testament, it's worth just thinking, how does the New Testament talk about the Old Testament? How does it refer to the Old Testament? 
And all the way through you'll see that it's treated as God's word and Jesus treated the Old Testament as God's word too. Just have a look at these verses, for example, on your sheets. Um, so Acts 13, verse 34, where, it, where, um, where Luke writes, God has spoken in this way, and then he quotes Isaiah 55, verse 3. Or Acts 13, verse 35, where he says, therefore God says also in another psalm, and then quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. Or Hebrews 3, verse 7, therefore as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95. Do you see that? God has spoken. God says, the Holy Spirit says, all talking about the Old Testament scriptures, all of it is God breathed. Now we don't have loads of time to go into this. Um, I'll set this as a little project for you in the week if you want it. Um, but the same can be said for the New Testament scriptures as well. So John 16, uh, 12 to 15 is a great place to see this. I think it's down there on your sheet. There Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come and guide them into all truth. He will make known to the disciples the words of Jesus so that the disciples can then write them down for us in the New Testament, um, which is God's spirit-inspired word. Or have a look in your own time at 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, where Paul's letters there are described as scripture, so described in the same way as the Old Testament scriptures. Or 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, where Luke's gospel is, is included as scripture. Again, so put side by side with the Old Testament spirit-inspired scriptures. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament have been spoken by God, breathed out by him. But at the same time, we know that the Bible is written by human authors, don't we? It's both divine and human. That's why we have such a rich diversity in the Bible. Paul's letters are different to Peter's letters. The Gospel of John is different to the Gospel of Mark. There's a rich diversity in the authors and genres. Here's how B.B. Warfield sums it up. The whole of scripture in all its parts and in all its elements down to the least minutiae in form of expression as well as in substance of teaching is from God but the whole of it has been given through the instrumentality of men. Now we'll see a few times in this talk that our understanding of the Bible relates to our understanding of God and his character. And here is one of those times. If the Bible is given to us by God through human authors in language we can understand, then that tells us something about God, doesn't it? It tells us that he is a God who wants to be known. John Calvin describes it like a nurse who uses slow and deliberate speech with a child. I think nurse is, you know, somebody who's caring for the child. You use, you condescend to the child, don't you, to use speech that they can understand. And in the same way, God must descend far beneath his glory and loftiness in order to make himself known to his creatures in language that they can understand. And he chooses to do that in his love and in his grace. But I think this teaching also helps us to understand why the Bible is so often opposed by people. The battle against the Bible is the battle of the human heart in rebellion against God. If God has revealed himself in his words and we are at heart rebels against him, then until God changes our hearts, we will be slow to listen, quick to speak and quick to get angry with the Bible because it's not just words on a page that we're getting angry about, but the God who has spoken these words. Now, what we've seen so far helps us to see why the reformers were willing to make their stand on the Bible. What scripture says, God says, and so we need to listen. The Bible is our highest and final authority in all matters of life. 
And that understanding of scripture, which I think is really foundational, then flows out into three other things that I want to talk about for the remaining time that we've got. We could spend a week on each of these. We've just got a couple of minutes on each. The first is the inerrancy of scripture. Now, the word inerrancy means without error. Remember earlier that we heard from Luther saying that the Pope and councils often err and contradict themselves. Well, the Bible is different because the Bible is true in all it claims. It's true in what it teaches about God and about us and true in what it teaches about life. It's without error. I just want you to turn in tables um, again, maybe in sort of threes or the whole table if you want to. Um, How would you prove that the Bible is without error from all we've seen so far? How would you prove it's without error from all we've seen so far? Have a go at that. That's one point I wanted to make. If God is a God of truth and the Bible is his word, then the Bible must be true. Um, Carl Truman, who um, is quoted on your sheet, he says, Scripture is trustworthy because the God behind Scripture is trustworthy. So you see those verses on your sheet. God is not man that he should lie. 1 Samuel 15, 29, he's the God of glory of Israel who does not lie or change his mind. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. So do you see that again, our understanding of the Bible goes back to our understanding of God. If we doubt the truthfulness of the Bible, then we doubt the truthfulness of the God who has spoken. But if this is the true word of God, then we can trust it completely. Now, I think this is a challenge to us when we're tempted by pick and mix Christianity. If you're you're hungry at the moment, then you're about to get hungrier. Um, I used to love having a bag of pick and mix when I was a child and going around and filling the empty bag with sweets. I still love it, to be honest, but don't do it very often. Um, great thing about pick and mix is you can choose what you want, can't you, from the store. You don't have to have an assortment. You can choose the very best. Um, for me, that was the fizzy sweets. Fill my bag with as many of those as possible. And that meant leaving behind the pink and white chocolate mice, which is just horrible. <laughs> I'm sorry if I've offended anyone deeply. Now, that thinking that we apply to a pick and mix stand is very dangerous, isn't it, if we apply it to the Bible? We might choose the bits of the Bible that we like and throw it into our Christianity bag. Um, Or we might leave behind the stuff that we don't like and don't agree with and we'll leave it out of our bag. And we do this because we doubt the truthfulness of the Bible. We find ourselves thinking, maybe that bit isn't true because science disproves it. Or maybe that bit can't be true because it seems so outdated. Or maybe that bit isn't true because it doesn't make sense of my experiences. And do you see that what we're left with is a bag of fizzy sweets? We're left with a Christianity of our own making and our own imagination and a God who ends up looking a lot like me. Now, the inerrancy of Scripture, it's true in all it claims because God is a God of truth and he has spoken. It's something we need to take our stand on. Now, a second attribute that flows uh, from the Bible being God's word is the clarity of Scripture. Now, maybe you believe all we've seen so far, but you can see a problem. How do we know what the Bible actually teaches so we can take a stand on it? It can seem very hard to get to the bottom of what God is actually saying. Maybe you've heard in the past, well, that's just your interpretation. That's your uh, reading of the Bible, and I read it differently. I'm sure you've heard that before. Now, this is one of the main critiques of the Reformation from Roman Catholic theologians. They thought that if the Bible was the highest authority and if the Bible was put into the hands of every ordinary believer, like William Tyndale wanted, if you remember from two weeks ago, then what you end up with are thousands of interpretations, no consensus and lots of divisions and arguments. Do you see that that criticism? 
Now, for Roman Catholics, this is where the institution comes in. In their view, the Pope and the Church are the places to go if we want consensus and clarity. And without the institution, we'll be left in darkness. Have a look, for example, at a document called Vatican II, written in 1966 and still the basis for the Roman Catholic Church. We read this. The task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. The church is the authentic interpreter of scripture. Why? Because the Bible is unclear to ordinary believers. Well, how should we respond to that? Well, the reformers responded by talking about the clarity of scripture. Now, when we say scripture is clear, we're not saying that everything in the Bible is always easy to understand. And I'm sure you've experienced that as you've read it yourself. We are saying that God has revealed himself to us in such a way that the crucial matters of life and salvation are very clear in the scriptures. He's given us clear words about the things that matter. I like this quote from Mark Thompson on your sheet. He says, God has something to say and he's very good at saying it. We see that in places like Isaiah 55, that God has a purpose when he speaks and it won't return to him empty. If God was to, again, character of God stuff, if he was deliberately to make himself obscure or unknowable, then he'd be a very cruel God, wouldn't he? But God has graciously made himself clear and he has taught us how we might know him. You can read the Westminster Confession uh, quote in your own time. By reading the Bible, by understanding the plain meaning, we can know what is necessary for salvation. That's why we teach the Bible to under force. That's why we preach it on Sunday mornings. That's why we open the Bible at real food and in quiet times during the weeks, because the God has spoken clear words, life-giving words that we can understand. Now, the third and final thing that flows out of the authority of God's word is the sufficiency of scripture. Now, it's obvious to say, but I think it's a point worth making that the Bible doesn't teach us everything about everything. That's not what we mean by sufficiency of scripture. If I wanna know how to use Microsoft Excel, I'm not going to turn to Ezekiel chapter 12. If I want to know how to use a power washer, I'm more likely to look at a YouTube video than turn to Matthew's gospel. We, we know it doesn't teach us everything about everything, but it is sufficient to, to, sufficient to teach us everything we need to know. 2 Timothy 3 again. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures equip us for all of life. Matthew Barrett says that scripture is not merely helpful, but is the source we turn to for all of life as a Christian. Do you believe that? I think it's a battle to remember that, especially if we've been exposed to some forms of charismatic Christianity, which I was growing up. Some Christians insist that the Bible is not enough for us and we need some fresh revelation from God. But the Bible teaches us that what we need is right here in front of us. We don't need anything else to live a life that pleases God. We don't need new experiences, new words, new, new, new. We need God's timeless word brought to light by God's Holy Spirit and applied to our lives today. We need to read and understand and love the scriptures. And so as we finish, I want to think about two implications of sola scriptura for today. Firstly, the Bible and ministry. And secondly, the Bible and you. Firstly, the Bible and ministry. I think this understanding of the Bible should give us great confidence. God has given us all we need for life and ministry because he has spoken to us in his words. 
And if God has spoken an authoritative, true, clear, sufficient word to us, what are we doing in our churches if we don't open the Bible and teach the Bible and hear what God is saying to us? The Bible needs to be in the driving seat of all we do. I also want to give you this challenge as those who may have many years of ministry ahead of you to make your ministry about the word of God, make it about the Bible. Some of you might go on to pastor churches in the future. Some of you might teach Sunday school, um, teach our children in church. Some of you might go abroad as foreign missionaries. Whatever you do, make your ministry about the word of God. But to do that well, we also need to think about the Bible and you, don't we? Because as each one of us approaches the Bible, there is a basic attitude that should characterise us all, and that's the attitude of humility. As we open these pages, and as you do that on your own, and you do that in groups, and you do that on Sundays, remember that we are encountering God himself, the living God speaking to us in his word, addressing us. We need to be ready for God to act on us and act in us. As Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We don't stand over God's word. God stands over us as the one who will judge our thoughts and our attitudes, bringing them into line with his word. And so our basic attitude needs to be humility, doesn't it? Do you therefore pray for a humble heart as you come to Sundays? Do you ask God to humble you as you meet in your real food groups? Do you let God interpret you as you open the Bible instead of just thinking about how you can interpret the text? This is not merely an intellectual thing. Our attitude to the Bible reveals our attitude to God who spoke these words. Do we listen to him? Do we submit to him? And we've been thinking about that, haven't we, in Deuteronomy? This is the most exciting, thrilling thing we could ever engage in to hear the voice of the living God, because as we hear his voice, we get to know him. And we get to know his love displayed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to know his salvation won for us in the cross of Jesus. Our Bible reading leads us to our saviour, the source of all life. That is why we want to go there, isn't it? Again and again and again. Psalm 119 says this, I'll end with these words. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth.